a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome along, one, welcome along all to episode 109 of the Howie Games Part A, wherever you are listening around the planet. I hope firstly that you are healthy, happy and close, really close to loved ones in these really strange times where I am in Victoria. It's been pretty tough for a lot of people over the last six months, but there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel, fingers crossed. Anyway, wherever you are, keep punching, keep your chin up. Okay, this week, an icon of his chosen sport, the pioneer, the game changer, the influencer, the leader, the best of all time, the GOAT, Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk is skateboarding. Tony Hawk putting on a show. He is going huge. I don't know where and how he comes up with these tricks. Tony Hawk is scintillating. It positively throws off sparks. Nobody else skates like Tony Hawk. He's going higher than ever before. It would be fair to say there was a lot of excitement in the Howie Games camp when Tony said yes to appearing on the pod. It's Tony Hawk. Goodness me. It does not get much bigger. It was once written, truly, it was once written that Michael Jordan is the Tony Hawk of basketball. Just think about that for a moment. Michael Jordan is the Tony Hawk of basketball. That's how big a deal Tony is. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. This episode covers Tony's incredible career from being the outlier in an outlying sport to global fame. From having nothing to having everything to nothing again, then building a worldwide mega business. Right now, for example, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 and 2 is available on PS4, Xbox and PC, all remastered and all way better than you remember. Check them out while you're at it. If you have missed our newer content, The Player Profile, which is a short, sharp burst of fun and weirdness, stuff you will not hear in the main episode, take a listen to Tony's Player Profile in the Howie Games feed. Here's a little bit of a taster for you. Paul McCartney, where did you meet Paul and what was so impressive about him, Tony? There's this visceral effect when he walks into a room that people are just drawn to him to, to just unload how much his music meant to them. I mean, it's it's unlike anything I've ever seen. I've seen people that are impressed with musicians and skaters and whatnot. They're like, oh man, I love your work. It's awesome. But but when they see Paul McCartney, it's like they they have to go talk to him. They're compelled to do it. And the way that he gives them enough validation, but keeps moving huh. was the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Really, it, like it, it, there was an art to it. That is from Tony's player profile. Check it out now. Alrighty, the Howie Games is beyond stoked to present for your listening pleasure Anthony Frank Hawk, aka the Birdman. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go, and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie. Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. 
Welcome to the Howie Games, the greatest skateboarder the world has ever seen. And I'm that excited to have him on. Tony Hawk, welcome to the show. How are you, great man? It is a great treat for me to see you over there in the United States of America. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I know we were going to do this in person uh, back in February. And that was, I mean, it's all a shame, but um, that was our first trip or outing to get canceled and everything fell after that. So that was going to be a speaking tour. Is it going to happen again? Because I know a lot of people here had bought tickets and they were that excited. And unfortunately, it's had to be postponed. No doubt you've got a busy schedule, but in some way down the track, can you see it happening, Tony? I'm, I'm ready to go anytime. I mean, right now, travel is virtually impossible, but when things open up, if we're allowed to get back together, if I'm allowed to travel to, to Australia, I, I'm in. Like, I, I have no hesitation. And um, I was really looking forward to that trip because I haven't been to Australia in a few years. Yeah, well, hopefully it does happen. Before we get too far into it, obviously skating is what you're known for. Do you still skate today and how much do you skate? Uh, it's funny. I've, I've been ever since COVID and, and sort of being stuck at home, I've been skating more than ever. Um, and so that's been the strange silver lining to all this chaos is that I finally kind of got back in my groove and, and I've been, I've literally skated every day over the last week. And you're just past 50 now. Where are you compared to your prime? And do you get out on your skateboard and is there things you used to be able to do that you can't do that now frustrate you or it's just part of the process of life, do you reckon? It's a little bit of both. There, there are tricks that it's not that I can't do them, it's that I just don't want to do them because I know the risk factor. I know what it's gonna take to get there, to go to actually make it. And I don't wanna put my body through that anymore. And I, I feel like there's no, there's no big reward to it either. It's like, well, you just did that to say you can still do it, but you know, it's not gonna really give me that, that satisfaction that I crave in skating, that buzz. Um, but definitely there are tricks. I mean, it's a perfect example is today I did a heel flip in the air, which is not a big deal in the skate world in terms of vert skating or ramp skating. I haven't done one in almost 10 years. Huh. I I tried it nonstop for like three days. Did you? Yeah. And I finally did one, you know, and, and it, there was not to any fanfare or not to big accolades, but it was important for me to know I could still do something like that. So that, that drive is still there, that you're prepared to spend three days trying to nail something now. Yeah, and do this to my shin. Give us a look, what do you got there? Oh, Tony, what are you doing, man? That was, that was today, that was like two hours ago. What's it? But I made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might, define, that might define why you got to where you are. I want to talk to you about the specifics. Uh, well, let's do it now. And you could take the whole hour and a half to answer this, I guess. But what makes a good skater? What do you need to have in your armory to be good on a skateboard? Um, discipline, perseverance, um, and creativity. Wow. And I think that there are plenty of people who are not naturals on a skateboard, especially their first time out, me included. When I first started skating, I was not good at it. It wasn't, it didn't, there wasn't some great, big bell that went off that, that I thought, oh, this is it. This is my calling. This is what I have to do. It wasn't until I went to a skate park about a year into skating and saw people flying around. And I thought, I want to do that. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I want to, I want to figure out how to fly like they do. And 
there are plenty of people that have a natural ability but don't have the determination or the drive or the perseverance. So I think it's more about having that grit and having that that drive and that desire to, to reach certain goals is what makes a good skater. There's a couple of things you mentioned there. Why discipline? What do you, what what needs to be disciplined to be good? Uh, the idea that you're going to go out and spend so much energy and so much time failing over and over and over and over, but you have the discipline to, to push through that to get to that one that you're going to actually do and make. And sometimes that's the only one you're ever going to make. But you have to be disciplined in yourself to be able to get there. I mean, like I said, I, I was trying this trick for the last three or four days. Every time I left the ramp, I left it as a failure. But I had the discipline to come back and try again. So how do you deal with failure? Well, at some point, you have to just suck it up. <laughs> you know? if, sometimes this is not going to happen. And you have to accept that. And th then that gives you a sense of your limitations. And that's okay. You know, I, I, I know that there are, I have plenty of limitations on my age now. So that's, that's fine with me. Um, and to have that acceptance is important to... to you know, you go through the stages of, of like, you get frustrated, you get angry. And then at some point you're in denial that, that you're ever going to, you're in denial of the fact that maybe you'll never make it. It's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But at some point, maybe you're not going to do it and move on. Cause if you dwell on this one failure, it, it sucks all the, the success out of you. The creativity side fascinates me when you use the word creativity. So when you're doing things that people haven't done before, Tony, have you woken up at the middle of the night and thought, wow, what if I do it this way? Or is it a planned process? How do you bring a new trick to the table and how do you go about picturing it in your mind? It's it's both of those things. Sometimes it's just, it's just a trick that comes to you. Think, oh, what if I did this one trick turning the other way or, or landing landing a different direction? And then you go test it out. And that's, that's pretty much it. Sometimes it's a happy accident. Sometimes your, your skateboard flies away, but it, but it twists in a certain direction where you think, well, if I just caught that, put it back on my feet, that'd be a whole new thing. Um, and sometimes it's just, it, it's just a goal that you have that maybe is, is not something that's, that's uh, brand new or it's something that has been done before by others, but you have that goal in your mind and, and that you're heading towards that. And a lot of times because of the process of learning that, you figure out maybe a new variation of it. And before we get into your story, mate, you fascinated me already. When we see you on Insta or social media and you're skating, it, it, that massive vert ramp, is that at your joint at home? Yeah. Or is that, you've got that at home, have you? Like in the garage? I have that in my office. That is my office. Is it? Yeah. So I have an office here uh, in a different part of San Diego. It's about 20 minutes from my home. And we have traditional offices where we, we run our foundation, the skate park project. We do all our licensing. We do birdhouse skateboards there. And then in the back, the actual warehouse itself is my ramp. Wow. That's cool. Um, it's, my, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Wow. As I said, we'll get to your story. And we'll get to video games at some point. Tony Hawk Pro Skater, 1999, over a billion sales. But when we've been trying to do this, you've been working on Pro Skater 1 and 2, and they've been remastered? 
Uh, yeah, just released uh, last month, actually. And so we are 20 years out from the first two games. Huh. And uh, there have been there has been so many requests from the fans of those games to remaster them that finally Activision listened. <laughs> I mean, I've been reading those comments for years. And um, I, I had a chance to work with Activision on, on a fundraiser um, a while back. And during that meeting is when the idea was, was, was uh, thrown out to, to remaster these games. And I said, you don't know how many fans are asking for that. And huh. they said, well, why don't we do it? And they put Vicarious Visions on the project. And it's been awesome. I mean, we, we are, we're four generations of consoles away from the first game. Huh. So the idea that we can bring it into the new technology and, and, and for the new generation of gamers has been amazing and it's been really well received, not just by, um, not just by the fans of the original game, but brand new gamers as well who are discovering it for the first time. And how busy does this type of thing keep you? Like you've just said you've been trying to uh, redo a trick for three days, but seeing your schedule when we're trying to organize this podcast, you're a man that looks like you got a fair bit on your plate, Tony. Yeah, well, in the in the case of the skating, that's when I'm just squeezing it in between obligations. Right. So I know today, for instance, I had a I had a two hour window to go skate. That's all I had, and so in a lot of ways, that pressure of of the time frame was what helped me finally make this trick. Because it was like, if I don't make this in the next twenty minutes, I have to leave again. <laughs> so um, that's kind of how it is, and and. Yeah, it's been it's been shockingly busy um, lately without traveling, and I'm not used to that. I'm used to the busy time is when I'm traveling and I'm moving and I'm going and like when we we're going to be in Oz, we we're going to be doing interviews nonstop, skate exhibitions nonstop, speaking gigs. I mean, the whole the whole schedule was jam packed. So to be at home and to be equally as busy has been a very strange adjustment for me. So where did this all start for you? When did Tony Hawk get his first skateboard and literally get sent on this path? I was about nine years old when my older brother was skating back then. He was a surfer in the 70s. He's still a surfer, but he started surfing in the 70s. And he, he would skate when he wasn't surfing just kind of to emulate the carving and the turning. And, and those are the days of the Dogtown and Z-Boys, so some backyard pools and things like that. One day I just picked up one of his old boards and I said, can I ride this? And he said, he said yeah, go ahead. And I, I set it down and pushed and then went down the, the alleyway of our home and ran into the fence at the end of the, of the alley. Um, and I got splinters in my, in my fingers because I didn't know how to turn or stop. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't a natural. So how far into it and what was it about you that it grabbed you, mate, and made you fall in love with this piece of wood with four wheels on it? It was when I finally got to go to the skate park and see the more accomplished skaters flying out of swimming pools. And that just spoke to me on a level that was, that was daredevil and also something I could do at my own pace. And it wasn't something that I had to, I had to show up for a certain practice to, to be accepted I didn't have to rely on the team for my own success. The team wasn't relying, relying on me for their success. And, and it felt like this blank canvas of, of an activity that you could just do in any style, in any form. And, and it was, it became your own. And, and I just, I love the community that surrounded it too. Like the, the, the attitude, the DIY ethos, the sort of renegade, 
um, against the grain, punk music, everything about it was exciting to me and I just dove in. And were your mum and dad behind it? I know your dad got pretty involved sort of setting up associations and stuff. What did your mum and dad think about their young bloke obviously spending a fair bit of time down at the ramp? Uh, they were very supportive and, and I, was, I was lucky because a lot of my friends' parents didn't want them skating. So the idea that my, my parents were encouraging of it was a, was a great surprise to a lot of my friends. And um, my dad saw a real lack of organization within the skate industry. And so he took it upon himself to sort of form a competitive series because at that time, the last competitive series kind of died out. And so there wasn't much happening on the skate front. And there was still a, a, a very passionate uh, faction of people that were riding skateboards. And he, he saw it as a, as a positive thing. Can you tell me a little bit about your dad and his background? He seemed like a pretty um, serious, impressive man from the reading I did, Tony. Uh, yeah, well, he was, in the, he was in the Navy in World War II. Uh, he flew um, fighter planes and he um, was honorably discharged uh, for health issues. And we ended up in San Diego because he was stationed in the Navy here. And so um, when he, when they got to San Diego, my mom and dad, I have three older siblings. So uh, my two sisters and my brother were working, they, they opened a um, snack bar near the beach here in Pacific Beach. And they, um, they would serve hot dogs and cotton candy and things like that. And he, he was just very DIY. Like he, he knew he had to provide for a family. He was gonna do whatever it took. So he did that for a while. Then he started, my, my sister was interested in singing. So he started helping her with band practice and lugging their gear and to and fro and found that he could distribute uh, musical instruments at wholesale in San Diego because there weren't a lot of people doing that. So through that, he started his own literal musical distribution center. So when do people that are in the skate community start to look at you, and there's no time for modesty, Tony, and you look at yourself and start to think, wow, I'm actually pretty good at this. It was probably in my first year as a sponsored amateur because my first sponsor felt like, it, it felt more like they were doing me a favor than really believing me as a skater. Um, and that was because uh, my, my dad had hosted them one time when they came to skate our local park. And so it was more like, ah, oh, give that kid some stuff. You know, his dad was cool to us. And then when I started competing as, as a sponsored amateur, um, I, I rose through the ranks very quickly. And so by the end of, the, the end of my first year as an amateur, I was, I was placing first. I was, I was seated in first place. And I got the interest of Stacy Peralta, who was famously created the Bones Brigade. Yep. And that's when I felt that validation. Because if Stacy Peralta was remotely impressed by my skating, that meant something. And you talked about an uh, amateur being sponsored. I presume that was skateboards. Like, did someone hand you a free skateboard and it just blow your socks right off your feet, thinking, "Wow"? Yeah, that was. But that's pretty much it. That was that was that was all it meant to be sponsored. Was that you got free skateboards? Okay. Um, I was lucky and unlucky in that my sponsor went. They, they went out of business within the first year of being sponsored by them. I was sponsored by Dogtown. And that was the very end of the Dogtown era. And 
I didn't hear from them. So I didn't know what happened. I just thought maybe, you know, they weren't communicating with me anymore. And Stacy Perelta called me up one night and said, hey, Tony, I heard Dogtown went out of business. <laughs> and I said, that must be why I can't get skateboards. <laughs> and then he said, I'd like to talk to you about being on the Bones Brigade. And that's, that was how it all went. Hi, this is Stacy Peralta. I co-conceived, directed, filmed, and edited the original Bones Brigade video show. It was the first of the Bones Brigade videos filmed during the year of 1983 and was created to showcase and share the talents of Bones Brigade skaters Tony Hawk, Steve Caballero, Mike McGill, Rodney Mullen, and Lance Mountain. We had no idea at that time in 1983 that households all over the world would soon have in their homes VCRs, which would make it possible for skaters everywhere in the world to watch these skateboarding videos in their own living rooms. So how does it progress from that to first competing for money? You've obviously made a, a, a life out of skating, but prior to that, people aren't making money out of doing what you were doing. So you're a pioneer in so many ways. When do you first compete and someone hands you some money? Um, my first year as a pro, <laughs> it's, it's so strange to talk about it in the light of, of what it means to be pro these days. Yes. When I would turn pro, I basically... Was, and was filling out an entry form to a competition. And instead of the amateur box, I ticked the pro box. Okay. That was it. That How was, old were you? Uh, 14. Wow, right. Okay. But, but that just meant that I was competing with another class of skaters and that we were all trying to get the $150 first prize. So that, that was the first money I made was, was from a competition. I think I got a check for $50. Um, I placed fourth in my first pro contest. And... How are you feeling about getting paid to skate at that point? Because as I well, said- Well, that's what I mean. It just, it wasn't, hey, in, in 1982 to a 14-year-old, $50 was awesome. <laughs> so I was excited to be getting paid at all, but I never, that's it was never the goal because no one was making money at it. You know, even the top pros, they weren't, they weren't really making a living at it. They were just doing it because they loved it. And if they reached- an age of responsibility, say in their late teens, early twenties, it was it was basically a given that you had to stop skating because you had to go find a job. Right. So when I'm when I'm not even sixteen yet, I'm just trying to collect money to buy a car. Um, eventually, <laughs> and that was the like that was the big goal for me. So it was exciting to be making some money, but mo more exciting just the fact that skating was was on the rise. And it wasn't until I was in my high school years that I started making significant money and realized that this is my career. Back to Tony in a moment. One of my favourite parts of the Howie Games is all the feedback listeners send through to me at MarkHoward03 on socials about the show. I love getting the feedback about what you like, what you don't like, suggested guests, all sorts of other questions about anything really. As a result, you might not be aware, but we have opened up the Howie Games hotline where we get listeners to record their questions about the show, send them in and I try and answer them. There are currently three versions of the hotline for you to listen to. So lots of questions. You get to hear all the answers. They are currently in the feed at the moment, three versions of the Howie Games hotline. So please, if you have some time, could you go back and have a listen to the Howie Games hotline and even better still, send a question in of your own. Your voice then will end up on the hotline show. This is a bit of what it's all about. The Howie Games Hotline. Ooh. 
not too sure if it's going to be possible for you or not to get the great Novak Djokovic on board. And yeah, I love to big penguin. <laughs> Cheers to you, brother. The penguin will enjoy that shout out. Thanks, Jasper. We're working on Federer, so maybe if I can get Federer on board, he can then convince uh, Novak and he can convince Kyrgios and then he can convince Nadal and then we got all four of them for you. Uh, g'day, Howie. Um, I'm just curious about commentator bias. The only time you favour a side is when you want a close game. If you could watch any sporting event throughout history, what would it be? That's huge. To sit there and watch Bradman make 300 in a day and to see how good he was, I think that's where I'm going. And once more, that Howie hotline number where you can record and send your message in is 0434 694 301. I'll give you a chance if you want to get a pen or a pencil or push it into your phone. It is 0434 694 301, plus 61 if you're outside of Australia. Leave a voice message or even better, record your question on your phone and message it or WhatsApp it through. Simples. Love to hear from you. Love to get you on the hotline. Alrighty, let's get back to Tony. What's significant money at that stage and how do you start to think, right, I can actually make a living out of this? Well, when I was 16... Um, I was winning a lot of the events with, with bigger prize money. I was getting, um, I was getting royalties for my signature skateboards. And by the time I was 17, I was probably making six figures a year, hundred thousand dollars a year. And I mean, it was, it was wild. It seemed like, you know, for, for someone that age, it seems like you're making a billion dollars a year. Cause it's just like, what? You know, I I bought a house while I was in high school. (laughs) The lure, of course, is to defy gravity, hopefully with style, just like the skateboard pros do. 19-year-old Tony Hawk is king of the cult, inventor of such maneuvers as the 720, that's two mid-air somersaults, the Madonna, and the Frigidaire. Between appearances and sales of his own boards, he earns in excess of $150,000 a year. Skateboards have been very, very good to Tony. Yeah, for me, it has been. I bought a house. Um, a condominium in Carlsbad. So that was all kind of absurd. And then you get this sort of invincibility feeling that it's never going to end. And it's just always going to be like this. And then you go crazy with spending money and you know, living to excess. Um, but I think that probably the biggest thing about that was that everyone else I knew was trying to figure out where they're going to go to college. And I already had a career. I was already making good money. I, I chose not to go to college. And how are you perceived within your school community at that stage amongst your mates, as we'd call them here? You know, you're earning you're earning more money than your teachers at this stage. Skating wasn't really popular then, so I was pretty much a ghost in the hallways. I really didn't... It wasn't that there was adulation. It wasn't that there was respect. It was just more like if you had gone to my high school then, you probably heard that a guy named Tony Hawk goes to school and makes good money, but they couldn't pick me out of a lineup. I don't know if you know Martin Potter. Sure. A world champion surfer. Yep. I'm sure you've probably come across him, does a great job on the WSL. We were lucky to have him on the show recently. And he was taking his surfboard, as you know, Tony, above the lip. And he was doing something completely different and the judges weren't respecting him. And he was almost, he was an outlier. And he had to push and push and push. It's been explained to me that that was you and your skating early doors, that you were going down a different path and it necessarily wasn't well received by those around you. True story or not? Oh, absolutely. My focus was on tricks. I just wanted to learn new tricks. So I was making up all these different tricks and I could do them in competition for the most part. 
And the vibe of skating back then was more about style and flow and tricks were they considered were like circus moves. And it was more about, um, they saw me as like a robot. And the the people who had the flow were doing the big errors were people like Christian Osoy. And so um, definitely through those years, in my early pro years, um, I got a lot of flack. I got a, I, I got a lot of um, people that said they didn't like me for my style, for whatever. I mean, I would even get written, like I used to get made fun of in Thrasher Magazine hmm. because they said my style was that uh, he cheats because he ollies into all of his aerials. So if you're alling into an aerial, it doesn't matter which way you grab it. And my my response was, that's the point. That's the only way I can get any heights is by alling into it. And I mean, if you if you look now, no one's doing aerials without alling into them first. So how did you stay the course? Uh, I had enough. I had enough support from friends and and people my age and and that that thought along the same lines that. Um, that I was still having fun doing it. I it wasn't the the it, I never did it for the validation. I never did it for the money. So so that wasn't the motivating factor anyway. Sure, it hurt. Like it, it hurt to be made fun of in the Bible of skateboarding back then. Um, but at the same time, I, I did have enough support, and I and I just loved doing it too much to have let that distract me from from progressing. Mate, your record is incredible. Uh, the National Skateboard Association champ for 12 straight years. The things he's doing out there really aren't conservative. He knows exactly what he's doing. Tony Hawk won't be touched today. You know, you're in contest. I think you won 73 out of 103, placed second 19 times. You're dominating the sport. Tony Hawk putting on a show. He is going huge. I don't know where and how he comes up with these tricks. Tony Hawk is scintillating. It positively throws off sparks. Before we get to the point when things started to not go so well for skateboarding, and you were talking about making money and being a young man and the excess, how excessive did it get in those 80s before the old bum fell out of the whole show? <laughs> uh, it was, I was just, I always loved gadgets. Right. So I would just buy all the new gadgets, all the new Walkman, the smallest cameras, um, any, any new video camera that came out at one point, I bought a tanning bed, <laughs> a tanning bed, Tony. Yeah. Just cause I thought that was, that was living large. You got a tanning bed in your house. <laughs> Did you have a nice tan? It was all absurd. Yeah. I live in California. Like it was just so unnecessary. Um, and so it was things like that. And then, and then I ended up buying, I bought another house. I, I had a mortgage that I was struggling to pay and, that's when I realized like I'm kind of in over my head financially. So what happened at that point? Uh, my income started shrinking and I realized I really was in deep shit with <laughs> trying to trying to maintain this lifestyle. And I ended up selling the house, uh, the second house I was in that had all the ramps that, that people probably knew of for me then, yep. um, that they knew of me. And um, I took the equity from that house sale and started my own skateboard company, which seems like the most risky thing you could do. But at the same time, I thought that my career as a skater was on the way out and I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be in control of, of a skate company. And I wanted to get my own crew, get my own team together. 
So um, I basically pooled all the money I had with a friend of mine who was also an ex-pro skater, and we started Birdhouse. Did you get to keep the tanning bed or did that get sold as well? <laughs> I gave it to my sister. Okay, okay. So Birdhouse, there's so much of your story is business. You know, first day, you open the doors, what are you, what are you doing and how are you figuring out what you're doing and what was Birdhouse in its uh, initial opening? Birdhouse was uh, what I wanted. I wanted it to be a company that was standalone that relied on good skating and not just marketing or, you know, skating was very much a place of infighting back then. So it was like the way that this company succeeds is by talking shit about this other company and who can be the most clever, who can be the most outrageous. And I was like, I don't want any of that. I want people to buy our stuff because our skaters kill it and we make good products. And so that was the goal. Uh, we, when we first opened, it was, uh, Pear Wheelander, who was the other pro involved, um, a, a guy, uh, who we hired to be the team manager and me in an office, cold calling skate shops. <laughs> like, Hey, this is Tony Hawk. We started a new company, Birdhouse. Just wanted to tell you what we're all about. And if you want to get our stuff, we'd love it. How'd that go? Slow. <laughs> Very slow. So for those that don't understand the cyclical nature of what's happened to your amazing sport, what and why, what happened to skateboarding, which obviously had massive impact on you, which you can explain to us, and why did it happen, do you reckon, Tony? Uh, there was a few different factors. I think one, especially in the U.S., was liability. Right. There were, there were skate parks um, that were, they were fairly abundant and – they just had so many litigation issues. People would sue them for getting hurt at their park. Uh, they had to pay outrageous insurance fees to stay open. And so as skating started to wane in popularity, not by much, it just forced all those parks to close. And so without those facilities, a lot of people just quit altogether. So it was just sort of this perfect storm of of people not being, it not it not being available to people. And... Also, skating had been considered more of a fad through previous years. So in previous cycles, skating was like, it was big in the 70s, and then it died in the early 80s, and then it got pretty big in the mid-80s, late 80s, and then it just died again in the early 90s. And so there was this cycle going on, and, and we just thought, oh, it's, you know, it's going to go underground again and probably come back. And that's, what, that's why I started Birdhouse, was to, to bank on that resurgence. So how tough... Did it get for you financially? It was tricky. I mean, I, I just started a family. I had I had a young child, Riley, my my oldest, but um, he was very young. Uh, we were barely taking a salary from Birdhouse. I was doing everything I could to make ends meet, taking odd jobs. Like I was a I was a consultant on a couple of TV commercials because they didn't want me skating because they thought I was too old. I was twenty four. Um, <laughs> And so they, they hired me as like, can you help us say, like, we're going to get a younger kid, but can you just tell what, what is possible if he jumps this or does this? Or can you build a ramp for it? Uh. I did that kind of stuff. I did <clears throat> skate exhibitions in, uh, in amusement park parking lots. Wow. And just do whatever I could to, to pay the rent. I'll digress for a moment. You've been on some famous ads, mate. Bagel Bites, Doritos. You've done some cracking ads. Whoa, Tony Hawk. Pizza in the morning, pizza in the 
With Bagel Bites, you can have the taste of chewy, cheesy pepperoni pizza anytime. Excuse me, Mr. Hawk. Could you, like, share? No way. Bagel Bites, now! What, what, what's your experiences in, in filming ads? Because, mate, some of them are an iconic part of American culture, your ads now. Well, it, it was more that, that I had enough had enough agency and clout that they were willing to listen to my ideas and I had enough leverage to say, I'm not doing that. And that took a long time to get that respect. And especially in the marketing world back then, because those are massive companies that that they don't, they're not going to listen to some renegade skateboarder for how to market (laughs) their product. But I, but my track record spoke for itself. So I was able to guide those those um, promotions and those commercials in a way that I felt had integrity. And so I love it. I love that I got to, I got to participate in those that I got to, that I got a hand in creating them. And I mean, it's wild. I never imagined being a commercial ever. (laughs) Have you got a favorite one or have you got one that sticks out in your mind? Because as I said, there's some real iconic ones, Tony. Oh, wow. That is a really good question. I love the Dorito spot that we did. Yeah. The original? Yeah, but the Frito-Lay, yeah. I'll have to find that and I'll try and stick it in here. I'm, I'm going sidetracked, but... Yeah, it's one where it's supposed to be me as a businessman, but yeah. everything I'm doing, I'm actually skating to all my business meetings yeah. and skating through my house, skating in the shower, skating to the dry cleaners, stuff like that. Do you know you've hit the big time when you're on The Simpsons, Tony? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now the portion of our event where champion Tony Hawk may be challenged by any unknown member of the audience. I'm challenging you, Hawk, in front of all these outcasts and dreamers. Dad, how drunk are you? Not very. I mean, when people ask me, um, what is your favorite project that you ever got to do? It's, it's by far The Simpsons. So what, what did that... Um, the what, idea that... Go on. Well, the idea that they were going to focus a whole episode around me and, and having a relationship with Bart was <laughs> insane. Um, and then reading my lines was just surreal. I mean, I was reading my lines to the character that plays Homer, to the character that plays, to the person that plays uh, Bart and Lisa. And it was just, it was unreal. You're going down, Homer, then back up, then down and back up again. That's how the game is played. That's it for Tony Hawk Part A. Catch you on Part B for more of The Birdman. Listener.